Hey, how was ballet on Thursday? So good. Are you coming? How beginner friendly is it? I say this as someone who has actually genuinely probably never done ballet as an adult. Even as a kid, I think I got kicked out of class after one attendance. <laughs> I think it's probably fine. This is You'll Be Hearing From My Lawyer, a conversation series about women's experiences of making a life at the bar of England and Wales. It's an opportunity for us to speak openly and honestly about the things that we, as women and barristers, think about a lot and should probably speak about more openly. I'm Jessica Vandermeer. And for my first conversation, I had the pleasure of speaking to Fitzreen Headley. Fitzreen is many things. Amateur ballerina on Thursday nights, school governor of her former South London secondary school, and a real sartorial inspiration. She is a top-ranked matrimonial finance barrister at Queen Elizabeth Buildings. Our conversation was so far-ranging and open that rather than editing down a three-hour conversation into one episode, we've made the decision to present the conversation over three different episodes. Each covers different themes, and you can listen to them in any order you like. In this episode, Fitzreen and I discuss her journey to the bar, microaggressions, and whether the bar can face the challenge of becoming a more diverse and equal profession for women and people of color. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So we know each other because we sat on the the Gray's Inn scholarship interviews this year, this March, for scholarships for the bar professional training course. You were chairing. I was one of your co-interviewees um, and Kabir Sondi was the other. So already there, we've got like Grays has put together a quite diverse panel. If my memory serves me right, we had at least two, if not three candidates where we, we asked them about their white privilege. Were you surprised that we had the space to ask that question? I don't think in previous years we'd have been able to ask that question. I think I've done maybe three or four, maybe more rounds of interviews for various scholarships. And I've never had the ability to ask such direct questions, such relevant questions. And I think it came as a surprise to the candidates because as I think we discussed, they seem to have prepared for a very different and much less diverse panel. And the fact that they didn't know who their panel was before they were admitted into Zoom, I think meant that a lot of them hadn't even turn their minds to issues of privilege and diversity and oppression. But actually that's telling because it means you've never had to bother before then and you're now winging it. Yeah, it it felt very much like we are selecting for the future that we want the bar to be. Exactly. Rather than like us, as in, or like, you know, like like what it's been when we arrived at the bar. Oh yeah, we squished ourselves into you know, into a mold. And I say squish because a lot of what we were doing was fitting in where we weren't necessarily being welcomed. And that really does mean you're making yourself very, very small in a profession that demands that you are very big. So how am I going to be very big and and out there and confident if to do so, I have to make my true self very small? The reason we are able to not be so small now is because we are more senior it's not because the world has changed. And so what I want for people coming through is that the world has changed. You can now be much more yourself and use that to your advantage 
rather than trying to fit into a mold that was never made for you. So you're right. I think it is recruiting for not us, essentially, not what we became to get to the bar, but rather what we would have been if we hadn't had to sort of mold ourselves into it. You'd mentioned that you'd gone to school in South London. It was at a local comprehensive, you were saying. Yeah, that's right. Girls' school. All girls. Oof. <laughs> Not the best school. And then I think you mentioned that you, you moved from there to a different school before you went to Cambridge. Yeah, that's right. I went to a, I mean, still a comprehensive, but a former grammar school. And a very, very good school, actually, just down the road, which I moved to for sixth form before going yeah. to Cambridge afterwards. Necessary, I think. And what prompted that move? A couple of things. One, I wanted to do a particular set of A-levels and they wouldn't let me do it at the school I was at. And two, I found that the teachers didn't really believe in me very much. They weren't that interested in me going further or me trying to reach my potential. And so I thought, actually, if I can't even do what I want to do here, what's the point in staying? I'm not going to be pushed. So I left. I joined a completely different school, one I wish I'd been able to join at age 11, but didn't get through the entrance exam for. And actually managed to really, I mean, the teachers there were were a bit like additional parents. They really kind of pushed you as though it was something they were going to put on their own fridge door. It was really extreme levels of parenting, but it was so useful. And it's why the school is such a highest achieving school and such an oversubscribed school in the area now. So yeah, it was a good move for me. Did you instigate that move yourself? Oh, yes. So my my parents were kind of busy with my brother. They were sort of like, oh, she'll be fine. Still my brother, he's sort of lolling about the place, not doing very much. And so I remember no one being available to take me to the open day for that school. But you could also not go without a parent because there's just lots of fighting, different rival schools turning up at these open days. Um, So I had to like sneak in with someone else's parents and be like, oh my gosh, this is is my (laughs) mum. So wait, you just, you just took someone else's parents who were in the queue ahead of you or something. And you were like, yep, yep. That's my mummy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, you, (laughs) (laughs) you are brilliant. That's me at like age 15, just being, I don't even remember how I got there. I must've literally just rocked up. I knew a couple of my friends would go with their parents I don't know how you want to go with this. I'll just find someone when I get there and wander around and hopefully I'll be able to see what I want to see. I feel like I was more driven then than I've been in years since then. So That's an amazing story. I have something similar, actually. I mean, so I, I was educated in the US. That's where I went to high school. And um, I think, so our high school is about four years long. And somewhere in year two, I decided that I wanted to go to a better, more high achieving school that was way out of our neighborhood. Yeah. Two weeks later, I, I strolled up, but I think the difference for me, and it's interesting hearing you speak about it. The difference for me is I told my mom and my mom is the one who then helped me get there. Um, and it was one of these classic, you know, like white, relatively rich parents show up to said school. And even though they don't live in the school district at all. Still managed to get the child in. Still managed to get the kid in. So I'm just so impressed that that little 15-year-old Fitzreen (laughs) 
co-opted a different adult and made this happen. Oh yeah. I mean, I think I look back and, um, people remind me of what I was like 15 because I always thought I was, I think what happened was I didn't do very well for my GCSEs. I wasn't, I wasn't really achieving anything. And I only had one teacher who thought, oh, come on, Fitzwilliam, you're smarter than that. You need to do something. Just one. It's my maths teacher. I wasn't even that much of a fan of maths, to be honest. But I had written down, we'd been asked to write down a sort of route map of where we wanted to be in life. And I had written down, I want to study these four A-levels, I want to go to Cambridge and I want to be a barrister. And that's what I'd written down at 15. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to do it now, aren't I? So put it on paper. <laughs> and, what, and what made you decide to put down both Cambridge, which is like quite specific. I mean, you could have said Oxbridge, you could have said Russell Group, you could have just said university. So what was it about Cambridge? And then I guess, secondly, what was it about barristering that caught your attention at 15? Gosh, you know, I can't pinpoint it. I perhaps thought Cambridge because we might have gone on a school trip by then. And it was a trip that all the sort of smart kids in the top sets went to. And I wasn't allowed to go. And it was my maths teacher. I remember him very clearly coming into a lesson I was in in design and technology and saying look, I think you need to go on this trip. I think you need to see Cambridge and look at it as something you can achieve. So I've asked them to let you go on this trip as well, even though you're not in these sets, essentially. You weren't originally invited to go on that no. trip because of the sets. What, what does that mean? I'm not sure what it's like now, but we had like bandings. You'd have, you know, the highest achieving would be in set one and then it would go down to maybe set five. Um, depending on how many children there were in each year. So you could be in so you could be in set one for English, but you could be in set two for maths. I think I was in set one for English, but set two for maths and set two for science. And I wasn't doing well enough to think that I was going to be an Oxbridge student ever in my life. And so it was the children who were all across the all across the board in set one who were invited to go because obviously they were the ones achieving at the level needed. And I wasn't that. I was only in one top set, I think. And so my math teacher said, even though I wasn't top in math, he was still sort of like, I can see potential here. I really think you should go. And it's what I think about. I think, you know, that's the one teacher I can really think of as being really on my side and kind of doing more than he needed to do, actually, because it wasn't as though I wanted to do maths. It wasn't as though I was really achieving this. And he thought, yes, let's push her for this. It was just a kind of, I can see potential in you and I don't want you to get lost. So go off and do that. And I think I appreciate that much more as an adult and as a school governor now than I appreciate that as a 15 year old. Cause I just thought, Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Without really thinking that that's so beyond the call of a teacher, to be honest. Do you think if it wasn't for his intervention, is there a question mark there about whether you would be where you are now? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think he was the first little push. And then I needed the latest pushes that I got from my teachers. Um, but I needed someone to say, you can do better than this and you're not achieving as much as you should be. Without saying it's a, a fault of the school, it's kind of a fault of the school. But it's a, it's a system. Yeah. It is yeah. a system in which, yeah. you know, I, I can't remember how many people are at that school now. But these are not small schools. These are schools of sort of, I don't know, 1,100, 1,500 students. You're not going to get tailored career advice or academic advice because there's just not the capacity to do it and 
they just need to get some results. And if they can get the results out of the top guys, why are you focusing on the, the people who are not achieving as well? I think he was the person who sort of steered me towards Oxbridge and made it sound like it was attainable. And I'd not seen Oxford. I'd only seen Cambridge. So there we go. Cambridge, that's where I'm going. Cambridge it went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the first school you went to was a local comprehensive all-girls. The school that 15-year-old Fitzreen got herself into was also an all-female institution? No, it was a mixed school. Mixed. And the school that you are presently a governor of, is that mixed? It is the same school, the same mixed school. It's the same school. Yes, I am back <laughs> as a governor this time around. And a lot of my teachers are still there teaching. It's so is, bizarre. <laughs> that is it. amazing. It's that horribly amazing. frightening to, to <laughs> see your teacher and everyone's addressing them by their first name. And I'm still saying, um, miss. I think we should, they're like, you don't have to call us Miss. Like, I feel very awkward about calling you by your first name, given that not that long ago, I like loads of time ago, I was calling you as yeah. Miss and only Miss. And I wouldn't dare call you by your first name. But it's the same school. They invited me back to become an alumni governor. Oh, actually, can we talk about microaggressions now? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Firstly, what do you understand as microaggression? It's hard to define. Yeah. So I found this definition, which you tell me if you're on board with it. And I get it from Vox.com for all of those people who would like to look up the article. I'll send a link. So they've defined microaggressions as the everyday slights, indignities, put downs, and insults that people of color, women, LGBT populations, or those who are marginalized experience in their day-to-day -day interactions with other people. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I'd say that covers it, right? I would say that was really quite accurate, actually. I was really scrutinizing that because the microaggressions that myself and my friends went through recently, I thought they're so subtle, but we're not stupid. You've got a group of educated women here and you're saying things just because it comes to your mouth and it's just, it's just your instinctive response to people of colour which really frustrated me. I'll explain it actually, it doesn't make sense. A couple of friends and I, I say a couple, four of us went to a bar in Clapham, which will remain nameless. And we had sat outside for a while, having our drinks. And then they'd said, oh, we're closing for an hour, but you can always come back. And we said, okay, fine, let's book our table for an hour's time. Great, we go away, we get some food, we come back. And we order more food, we order more drinks. And then this, this waitress comes up and she just puts the bill on the table. And we all kind of look up at her, like, what? why have you put the bill on the table? That's out of nowhere. But no one says anything. We just look at her. And she can kind of see our faces because she can see we're quite shocked by what she's doing. And she says, oh, did no one tell you that this table is booked? And we said, no, no one told us. She said, okay, well, it's fine. I can accommodate you inside for about an hour if that's okay. We go, yeah, fine, that's okay. We'll go inside. Perfect. All fine and dandy. We sit inside, freezing cold inside for some bizarre reason. And we're all a bit kind of deflated because we've just been in the sun, having a great time, and now we're inside. So none of us really are ready to drink again. And we get three people come up to us and say, so what do you want to drink? What do you want to drink? What are you drinking? And finally, the same girl comes up to us. I say girl, she's probably in her mid-twenties. And she says, do you want a drink? And we say, look, could you just give us a minute? Because we've, we've been drinking all day. And we've just got here. We quite like to just like take a break and decide what wants to do next. He said, well, you know, I told you only have half an hour. I said, well, no, you told us we had an hour. That's not quite correct. So, um, well, just so you know, when you get a drink, you're going to have to leave when I tell you to leave. Oh, we all just 
looked at her and we all just picked up our bags. We didn't say anything to each other. We all just gathered our stuff and walked out. And I said to her, excuse me, that was really rude. That was such a rude thing to say. And she turned around and said, well, some people might not recognize the microaggression, but she turned around, she looked at the four of us and sort of one Asian girl, one mixed race girl and two black girls. And she said, I think you were really rude. Full stop. And I said, how was I rude? Because that's important because we were already leaving, but you had some kind of retort for us. And, um, she said, no, 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 no. Well, it was because you were rude outside. I said, like, well, if we were outside and rude, why would you invite us in? And just, you could see her getting more and more uncomfortable. And another lady came over and I said, look, I'm not, I'm not even using the R word yet, but I need you to know that that's a microaggression. He said, no, no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. I said, no, 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 no. It's exactly what you meant because it tripped too quickly off your tongue. You thought that the only way to respond to us was that we were rude. Not because we'd done anything rude, but because we were black. And that's it. I said, let's speak to the manager. And one of my friends said to the manager, you know, if she had said something to someone from the LGBTQ community and said something like, oh, you're a diva or something like that, that wasn't necessarily an insult, but was very clearly directed at their protected characteristic, you wouldn't stand for it. And we had the very rude manager and I was sort of saying, you know, this is what's happening. This is why it's upsetting us. And um, he said, well, I assume she didn't mean it that way. And I said, you weren't there. How, how can you assume? He just put his hand up in my face and said, I let you talk. Let me talk now. So it starts to get worse and worse. And he says, um, he says, what do you want? What do you want then? What do you want? And my friend said, I want you to train your staff. That's what I want. I want you to make sure your staff do not make people feel like we have felt today after having a lovely day. You've just ruined it. So well, I'm sure it won't happen again, but what do you want? And I sent him and said, what's really upsetting me now is that you think that we just want a free drink. You think we've these black girls will come in and want a free drink out of our racism. That's not what we want. We've just told you what we want, which is for you to commit to training your staff better. Yes, I'm, I'm, sure, I'll, I'm sure I'll do that, but what do you want? And by this point, the girls have got up and left. And I'm just like, I want my money back. Every penny I've spent, give it back to me. I don't want to drink here. Give it back. And they're all sort of saying, let's really leave it. I was like, no, no, no. He's not going to, he's not going to train his staff. So why should any of my money sit in this company for him to do nothing about it? And he was so embarrassed, he did give me my money back. But it was this double layer of, I say double, triple layer of the first microaggression, the rudeness, the pure aggression. And then the third microaggression, which people might not notice of saying, how can I help you? What do you want from me? Because any sensible person would have said, I'm so sorry. That is something I need to address with her. Would you stay with us for another drink? And then it'd be the situation would have diffused. But it was this suggestion that we were just these angry, aggressive women who wanted something for free that really riled us up. So this, this conversation went on for something like half an hour. But it really irritated me. And it was because it was so natural to her and that no one thought we would call her out on it. And I'm like, no, sorry, we're calling you out on that because I don't want you to ever do that to another person in your life. And some other people might have just gone, that's horrible of her and walked away and never come back to you. I want you to remember exactly how we spoke to you today, that we were actually quite polite. We just told you what was wrong with your behavior and why it was inexcusable and how to fix it. So maybe you learned a lesson today. But it was a really unpleasant evening, a really, really unpleasant evening for us all and reminded me of how people can be without knowing necessarily, but because it's so ingrained, just quite prejudiced um, and have immediate stereotypes in their head about 
what is it like? But we had been there for hours. <laughs> we, had, we had spent quite a lot of money by then. Um, and so to be kind of ushered out as though we were sitting there drinking tap water and taking up their space, I thought was really, really offensive. Um, but there you go. And the table we left was given to a group of guys we knew who were these <laughs> sort of a group of mixed there were sort of white guys and black guys and everything else. And we said to them, I wouldn't stay here. <laughs> this is what's just happened to us. Um, and they were like, well, maybe we don't want to stay here either. So we're just giving you our table. So you may as well sit and enjoy it if you want to. <laughs> so <laughs> it was outrage. And they, they probably thought, oh, wait, hang on. How do they know these people? Well, because we'd all been there early in the day. We'd been there all day speaking to each other. So, yeah, that's just a very sort of long-winded way of talking about a particular, because this was only a couple of days ago, microaggression that I saw. And it really, I think at one point I was like, you know, that anger when you're nearly in tears, you're so frustrated. I was just sitting there with my head in my hands while they were all being much more beautifully articulate. And I was just sitting there being like, I'm so frustrated that you are talking to me like this. You have no idea of what we go through day to day. And you've no idea of how hard all of us have worked to not be treated like this. And yet still you've decided who we are, who we are and how we should be treated. And that is something I can't fix, which is so unfair. Yeah. And what's incredible as well is that in those circumstances, rather than just kind of taking the easy way out, Fitzreen, which is to just keep that woman comfortable with her, her situation and not to identify the problem and thereby becoming the problem, which is effectively what happened, right? Like you became the problem twice over because when you told this manager what you wanted, which was the training, he, he doubled down or tripled down and kept asking you, you know, like, but what do you really want? This goes back to like you in that moment chose not to work to sustain the comfort of others in those circumstances, right? Yeah. And you know, I, I don't think I've ever been so forthright about it. Yeah. What do you think changed for you that day? I think there's a combination of the fact that the people I was with, I mean, I was the youngest in the group, but we're not super far off age. We're all sort of mid to late thirties. And the group I was with was such highly accomplished and articulate women that there was sort of the outrage of thinking, hang on, we don't, we don't need to beg to be seated here. We could go somewhere else. And then the more this girl, I keep saying girl, but I refer to everyone as a girl. She is a woman. The more this woman got upset, the more irritated I was because what I saw was literal white fragility in the making. I saw her going, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean it. And then I'm going to crumble down. I'm going to start looking really small and my eyes are going to start to water and you're going to have to back away because now you're the aggressor. I was like, absolutely not. I don't have time for this today. You were fully able to take us on by calling us rude. When I just said to you, I thought you were rude and you knew you were rude. So all you had to do was go, I'm sorry you think that way. And we'd have left. We'd all have got on with our business. We would have gone and drunk somewhere else. But it was the fact that you chose to create a problem and then stood back as though we had suddenly rushed you out of nowhere and caused you all this pain. No, you brought it on yourself and you're not going to be able to back away and cry and hope that everyone backs down because you're now fragile. I do not care if I'm the problem now. I really don't because she will never forget that. I guarantee she will never forget that. 
in old days she does anything sort of castle facing she may even not forget it and be even more horrible in the future but she's not going to forget it anytime soon because she wasn't expecting it and that's what I wanted actually I wanted her to realize that making people feel rubbish and being prejudiced is not going to fly anymore we can't just get away with it and hope for the best someone's going to call you out on it and they're going to do it very nicely but they're not going to shy away from calling you racist if you are being racist which is something I never do I feel like I never say to someone, even if someone's overtly racist, I feel like I never use that word because I find people are more offended by being called racist, by being called racist than they are about being racist. Um, And that's actually not my job. My job is not to keep you from feeling nice and sheltered and okay with yourself. You've never done something like that in terms of calling out a microaggression or calling out racism in a work context. I mean, I've done it in a work... I mean, no, actually, have I done it in a work context? No. I've never done it in a work context. Because it will have existed. Oh, hugely. I've been through several. I've had... Uh, I've been sitting at qualifying sessions and been asked why I haven't taken a rowboat from Barbados to Guyana to see my father's land. Why haven't you been to your father's land? I just haven't. I was going to go one year from Barbados, but the flights were really expensive. Why couldn't you just take a little rowboat? Those are international waters. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't understand. And I remember a black bencher sort of looking up from his meal, smiling at me and going back to his meal as though he was sort of like, yeah, this is how it's going to go for you for the next few years. And just being utterly horrified, but having no power to say anything. And he yeah. didn't say anything. I suspect he was like, this is just how it is. It wasn't Yeah, this is this is your initiation yeah. to the the establishment. Yeah. Welcome in. This is this is one of the minor ones. You could you could get so much worse. So I've never called I didn't call that out. Obviously, I was a student. You are in such a vulnerable position you can't at that say point. Anything. I didn't call out the two clients or one client's relative and the other one a client who had referred to the everyone to be offended, nigger in the woodpile. Because one, I'd never heard of the phrase before day three of pupillage when it was said in front of me. But I looked it up then and was able to know about it when on day probably 56 of pupillage it was said again. But I'm not in a position to be able to say, hang on, that's a bit rude or that's outrageous. And I didn't think that anyone around me, though they were in a position, felt like they wanted to put corners out because although they knew it was wrong, at the end of the day, these are our clients and it was better to keep the work than to sort of make the client uncomfortable and risk losing that work when it was just a pupil on you know, day three. Why lose this huge client over this girl who's just turned up? Doesn't seem to make sense. But it meant a lot to me in terms of where I felt I belonged at the time and that I didn't feel like anyone was going to stick up for me and say that that was not appropriate or at least they weren't going to do it publicly. And that's almost worse when you say behind the scenes, oh, that's not okay. But you're not going to stand up at the time and say, that is not okay. We don't condone that. Not a single person's room is okay with you saying that. Apologize. Which has so much more impact. Yeah, especially when there's financial consequences potentially yeah. involved, yeah. right? Which is your motivation. Not, I'm not going, I don't care how much you're paying me. I don't accept that behavior at all. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to fix it. And 
I didn't get that at the time. And I, you know, I, we, we spoke about this before, but I did sort of get an apology last year. I mean, obviously the world changed drastically last year, but I'm, you know, I'm 10 years in. I, I needed it then as a, as a 22 year old who was not knowing what they were doing and, you know, de- literally day three, freshly iron shirt days. Um, I needed to know that I belonged in this place, didn't have anyone that looked like me, um, and that I was going to fit in and be able to make a career there. I just didn't have that, uh, which was incredibly damaging. And I wouldn't want someone to go through that. Uh, but I kind of just pushed through it. It was sort of, I, I think I was the kind of person then who had done so much sort of adversity, so much, and I say adversity in a way that, the way that I knew it, because I felt like I didn't have a lot of adversity uh, at school because everyone was from the same socioeconomic background, really. And so I wasn't behind. Whereas at Cambridge, I certainly was. The, the stick out, oh, her boyfriend's black, he must be a gangster. Um, does she blush? Does she tan? Let's all talk about black people and what they do. Um, and I felt like by then I had something to prove. And so I was going to have to be strong and just get over it and keep pushing forward and prove that I could make a career out of it. Um, and I guess it was helpful for me. I guess it was helpful to gather that amount of strength. But in the last year, a lot of the conversations between myself and my peers, particularly, I'd say all my female peers, but particularly my black female peers has been, we don't want to be the strong black woman anymore because you don't hear us when we are in pain. You just don't hear it because you assume we'll just take it. Um, and that isn't what we want because it's breaking us down more to keep taking it. And you're not giving us less. You're just giving us more now because you think, well, she took the last horrible hit there. She'll just keep taking them. be fine. Um, and so although I think I gathered a lot of strength uh, from that, I don't think that that should be what I take from it. I think what I should have taken from it was people are on my side. This is unacceptable behavior rather than you have to fight against this. What do you think prompted the apology 10 years later? George Floyd's summer. It was a, hey, look, actually, I recognize that that wasn't okay and that you needed, you weren't in a position of power at all in any way, shape or form, being both the person being offended by the remark, I'm sure everyone was offended by it, but literally being offended by it, it's being very personal towards you, but also the youngest person in the room, the person with the least power in the room, and we made a decision that, you know, you were kind of okay with it. You seemed okay. You cried for a bit and you were fine. And therefore it was fine when you didn't have the power to say it was fine. That wasn't in your gift. And so we recognize that now, but that I think is as a result of some unlearning that has been done in the last few months. I feel like the, the speed of the unlearning has slowed down considerably since the change of yeah. the year. But then yeah. the sort of this time last year, it was, people really thinking about what they might have done that's contributed to it. And there was some very obvious examples, which meant that people had to really face up to them and think, oh, actually, hang on, I may have done something wrong here. Yeah. And also even just the position of, you know, that Audrey Lord quote of your silence will not protect you. Yeah. Just sitting there and checking young pupil Fitzreen doesn't have a visceral reaction to what everyone around the table would, I hope, acknowledge is an offensive statement. Yeah. Is not good enough anymore. Your silence means you're on the side of the oppressor. 
Exactly. And that's exactly yeah. what it was. Is it was it told me subconsciously that they were all in it together and it was fine for them because that's just normal. And that I had to suck it up if I wanted to succeed and suck it up I did, to be honest. Originally, the question that I wanted to follow up with was given the things that you've identified about being at the bar, both in that interview, right? The professional and personal experiences that you've had of being part of this profession. The original question I wanted to ask was, what do you think needs to change in order for you to have a more positive experience? Which is A, like a huge question, but also B, I think problematic because I'm putting you in the role of an educator, like I'm saying, not only Fitzreen, are you going to have to like talk about these experiences, but please also, you know, teach me and like, and change the system or at least give recommendations to change the system, which is certainly not what I want to do. I get that. Yeah. I get it. But the recognition of that is important because it's a recognition that people don't have. It's still sort of, how do you expect me to fix a game I didn't start? It essentially, you know, I didn't create this Monopoly board. I don't know why it was created. But what you're saying to me is I lose on this Monopoly board. So I need to teach all the other losers how not to lose. Yeah. How does that work? So it's top down. There's obviously a role for the oppressed people from whatever protected group to say, here's what makes me feel uncomfortable or here's what would help me. But at the same time, it has to come top down because if I think that the judges don't care, then how am I going to progress through the ranks? It's just not going to work. If I think people say, well, you know, you could qualify as a judge because I'm at the stage now where I can and, you know, you could start changing it yourself. Well, no, because if I'm not respected as a judge when I'm sitting up there, and to be honest, I look quite young anyway, if I'm not respected as a judge sitting or my fellow judges don't respect me for whatever reason, but partly prejudicial reasons, that doesn't solve the problem. It just makes me uncomfortable. And I don't want to be in an uncomfortable position purporting to help everyone around me, but primarily actually only helping those who are worried about their positions in terms of being racist or being oppressive. It's not my job to make the systems less racist. It may be my job to tell the system what I have experienced, but I can't fix it from the, the outside, which is where I am. I didn't create the system on this basis. I don't think it's a go away, that's not my problem. I think it's everyone's problem. We've all got our own prejudices, we've all got to learn. But I think putting the heaviest emphasis on, for example, black people to bring up black people, I think is stupid. Part of the problem is there are fewer and fewer black people in a position of power to be able to bring up other black people. So it requires people who are not black to be able to say, hey, I'll bring you up. So, you know, these kind of summer schools or work experiences where you bring in your, your only black person and say, look, someone's made it. Uh, now you spend time together. That's not helpful. Because although it's nice to see people in a position that you want to be in, there's still a glass ceiling, which gets lower and lower, I feel, with the shade of your skin. So you might have your low glass ceiling for being a woman that you're trying to shatter, but you've got a slightly lower one anyway, just by being a darker shade. That's so, so much harder for me to be able to say to someone, you know, so I'm saying if someone shoves a small black girl in front of me and says, look, you're only 14, but this is, this is this barrister who's doing quite well now, isn't she? 
yeah? I'm not going to tell her that this is the place to be. I'm not going to tell her she's welcome here. That's what you need to do. It's not my job. She needs to be with the other members of Chambers who also need to be confronted with their particular prejudices and their subconscious biases, and also to understand what it takes to support and encourage someone who isn't of their own background. There is obviously going to be an overlap in terms of socioeconomic and race and classes. It's never going to be as simple as this black person is going to not do well, but this white person regardless of class is going to do well. That's not quite how it works because there are issues. But I don't think saying that helps the problem. It's the same sort of thing is people politicizing various bits of it and saying, well, there are also state educated white children. Yes, there are, but they're going to have different issues. They're going to face the same issues as their state educated or working class background peers, regardless of their race. But they're not going to have the same issues in terms of race and bias as the black person is. And so covering up by saying, well, there are issues everywhere. Of course, there are issues everywhere. We know that there is privilege on very many different levels and it can't be ignored. And as I say, I'm a school governor with a school that's in South London. It's not going to be it's full of rich kids who are, have every opportunity in the world. Of course it's not. It's, it's much more diverse than that. But as we said, there, there, you can still see in stats across the country where, where attainment is low for various reasons. And it nearly always is in Black Caribbean, more than any group. Black African attainment is actually quite good, weirdly enough, <laughs> uh, which is a cultural thing, which is much more complex and nuanced than I think I could ever speak about. But Black Africans always above, at the moment, Black Caribbean attainment, and it has been for many, many years. And part of that may be a class thing as well. But I think sometimes you have to just bite the bullet and go, wait a second, what about this particular group? Rather than saying, what I think is essentially all lives matter, by saying, well, there are other problems here with this group and this group and everything else. Just isolate each one and work on what their particular issues are rather than trying to squish them all together and think, oh, it'll be fine. Because things like BAME, I don't really use the word BAME because it means you can say this percentage of people are BAME, but you'll find that the majority are of another um, ethnicity than black. So you'll say, we've met, we've met our BAME target, but there's not a single black person there, which makes it very, very problematic, actually. So I don't tend to use the word, though I know it's become a very popular word, mainly because I feel like black and white sound very harsh. They just do. I find it quite uncomfortable saying that white man. And I suspect that's because if I say a man, you assume he's white. I would have to say a black man for you to change your mind. It's like white is the, is the sort of zero and you have to diverge from there. And so it's, it's so rare for me to say, this white woman did. I would just say this woman I saw did, and everyone would assume I was talking about someone who was white. It's interesting, isn't it? When you look at it from the perspective of precision, though, all you're doing is being precise, but you're also identifying almost expressly the inherent prejudice that we have with, with the statement, with the noun man or woman. Yes, yes. Thank you so much to Fitzreen for sharing her time and her stories. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of You'll Be Hearing From My Lawyer, then please share it with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you think might be interested. And if you haven't already, please listen to the other episodes in this series. 
This podcast was created and produced by me, Jessica Vandermeer, and Naomi Adidukon, with help from Jessica Brown Swinburne. And this podcast was made possible by the Honorable Society of Gray's Inn. We'd like to give a massive thank you to the head of education, Tony Charles. Thank you so much for your support. 